Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I news now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is August 9th, 2017, and this week we're joined by the storyteller and the historian, Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, Neil Urban from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Phoenix, Arizona, as well as Katrina Oliphant and Sir Hugh Strawn talking to us about the new British podcast docudrama called Enter the Peace Brokers. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the World War I Centennial Commission and your host. Prelude. In episode number 26, we told you the story about how the American Red Cross was nearly instantly transformed by the U.S. entry into the war. In one week in late July, 100 years ago, the U.S. government uses its propaganda machine to raise well over $100 million on behalf of the Red Cross. They technically installed their man, Henry P. Davidson, as the organization's overseer through a war council. And finally, they announced that the Red Cross personnel will wear uniforms when they're in the war theater. It's a bit over a month later, and it's time for an update on this iconic humanitarian organization that wasn't born, but was forged by the war that changed the world. We've gone back in time 100 years, and it's the week of August 5th, 1917. From the headlines and the pages of the official bulletin, the Government War Gazette, published by order of President Wilson, by George Creel, America's propaganda chief, we now explore the next chapter in the story of the Red Cross. This week, the story is not about transformation, but about preparation as the Red Cross prepares to take on their new challenges. Dateline, Tuesday, August 7th, 1917. Headline, Red Cross to ship 50,000 pounds of ether to France. The story reads, In response to an urgent cablegram, the Red Cross is planning to ship 100,000 one-half-pound tins of ether to France. Also, because of the shortage of anesthetics in France, the Red Cross War Council has also authorized the establishment, as soon as practicable, of a central plant to manufacture nitrous oxygen, or laughing gas, one of the most effective and harmless anesthetics for short operations. American machinery will be shipped to France for this purpose, and American operatives will be sent over to conduct the plant. Headline Red Cross creates Sanitary Service Bureau to help make Army cantonments healthful. In this story, the Red Cross prepares for what is probably the biggest human migration in the country's history, as tens of thousands of young men from across the land are gathered in rapidly built military training camps. The story reads... Following its policy of caring for the health of not only the soldier and sailor of the United States, but that of the civilian population, the American Red Cross has established a Bureau of Sanitary Service, which will supplement and assist federal, state, and local health authorities in meeting sanitary emergencies created by the war effort. 
the work of the Bureau will center in the civilian areas surrounding Army cantonments. The assembling of large bodies of troops from around the nation will create new sanitary condition challenges which must be met to safeguard the health of civilians and soldiers alike. And in a detailed follow-up on the announcement of uniforms and ranks for American Red Cross personnel. Headline, Army Rank Assignment to the American Red Cross Workers, the insignia to be worn and restrictions to be placed upon them. In this article, we learn about the ranks and the insignias that will be assigned to Red Cross personnel. Examples include a Red Cross director, who is the equivalent of a military major and who will wear the Greek cross in red enamel on cap, hat, or helmet. Or the Red Cross secretary, the equivalent of a sergeant major, will wear the Greek cross in red enamel on both sides of the collar of coat or shirt. The article also specifies... To avoid the presence in European theaters of war of persons who may not be acceptable to the authorities of any foreign government, or in whose loyalty there may not be placed undoubted confidence by the government of the United States, as well as such other governments, the name, residence, and former employment of each member of the American National Red Cross below grade 7 will be furnished to the Adjutant General of the Army with similar information furnished to the Commanding General, United States Forces in France. And in a final story this week, meant to clarify that members of the Red Cross are not actually U.S. military personnel. Headline, Red Cross to treat enemy wounded as kindly as friends. The story reads, To make clear the attitude of the Red Cross, Henry P. Davidson, chairman of the War Council, authorizes the following statement. When war was declared between the United States and Germany, The neutrality of the American Red Cross, of course, ended automatically. The American Red Cross can cooperate only behind the lines of the armies of the United States and its allies. But the Red Cross knows no such thing as nationality of a wounded man. Any wounded enemy turned over to the care of the American Red Cross will receive as kindly a treatment as any friend. The Red Cross will not only extend every aid and comfort to the armies of America and its allies, but it will assist in every possible way the sick, the wounded, and the afflicted among the civilian population among our allied countries. This is in conformity with the practices of the Red Cross Society in every country. And that's an update on the evolution of the American Red Cross 100 years ago this week. And still from the pages of the official bulletin comes the lead-in to the next section of our program. Dateline, Saturday, August 11, 1917. This simple one-paragraph notice reads, The President yesterday afternoon formally announced the appointment of Herbert C. Hoover as Food Administrator for the United States. Which makes the perfect lead-in for our intrepid duo, the storyteller and the historian, Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton. Today they're going to explore the Food Administration and Herbert Hoover's takeover of U.S. food production. Greetings. This is Richard Rubin, storyteller, the author of The Last of the Doughboys, and back over there. And this is Jonathan Bratton, historian. Let's go back to the almanac, shall we? We see on August 10th, 1917... President Woodrow Wilson signs the Lever Act, passed by Congress authorizing the president to control foods, fuels, fertilizers, and machinery used for food production. 
so that he is freed to create the Food Administration with Herbert Clark Hoover in charge, which he had advocated in a May public announcement. Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. You've got it really is. the control of foods and the production of fuels and f- food uh, agricultural equipment and the utilization of agricultural equipment. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but... Um, food rationing goes back to the First World War. Mm. And the concept of meatless Mondays and wheatless Wednesdays uh, came into effect. Um, There were posters that I've seen urging people to eat more fish because, quote, they feed themselves. That's right. Uh, And even here in Maine, which is at the time was a heavy potato production state, there were posters that went up that said, eat more Maine potatoes. Every potato eaten is a bullet fired point blank at the heart of the Kaiser. Not exactly the most militant things, potatoes, but in World War I, they, they yeah. definitely played their role. Have you ever been hit by a potato fired out of a gun? This is true. They do hurt. Yes. I mean, and let me tell you something. Your standard leather pickle halba, not much protection <laughs> against that. Uh, but, you know, it was uh, fats and fuels for fighters and things like that. This was an important thing. Liberty Gardens mm. go back to the First World War. And so really, conservation is... Uh, creation of the First World War. I mean, this was a country that had always been able to feed and really overfeed itself, had always been a net exporter of food. And for the first time, people are told to consume less and to consume different things and to adopt the doctrine of the clean plate uh, and things like that. Uh, really, Again, another another way that America sort of moves into the modern era in the First World War. But then there's Herbert Clark Hoover. Now, now for those of you who perhaps have not the highest opinion of Herbert Hoover based on his presidential record, and I would put myself in that category. Something, I don't want to speak something, for you, Something Jonathan. Great Depression, I don't know. Uh, how about the Bonus Army in 1932? Uh, Herbert Hoover's callous indifference. Possibly even worse. To the plight of American World War I veterans who were starving in the Great Depression and marched on Washington just to get enough to feed their families and was turned away. Um, before all that... Herbert Hoover was the man who, first of all, rescued 100,000 Americans trapped overseas Mm. when the First World War broke out. Uh, He was the man living in London at the time who was assigned to get these 100,000 Americans home safely, no small feat at a time when uh, unrestricted submarine warfare was the German strategy of the day. And then later was tapped to head the effort to feed starving Belgians in Europe. Uh, Belgium, uh, as you may know, a very small country, a net importer of food, uh, unable to do this once the Germans had invaded and conquered a great deal of it. And so Belgians were uh, quite literally starving before Herbert Hoover organized an effort to get them fed, and it was a tremendously successful effort. Exactly, it really was, and it's really incredible because if you look at some of the um, the broadsides and posters that were put up concerning uh, from from the the new food administration, it was talking about how America has a duty to take care of those in need, not just those that we like who are in need, but 
no matter what, as one of them said, no matter the, the, the race, color, or creed, it is America's job to feed starving children. And it's a, it's a pretty remarkable moment in American history, as, as is the entire uh, U.S. entry into World War I. But this moment where we actually uh, took a step really into taking care of, of the needy of the world for really no other end than its own good. Now, I'm sure someone could be cynical and say that we had political ends involved there, but... Uh, or, or could be cynical and say, yes, we were taking care of the needy of the world, regardless of race, color, or creed, uh, but perhaps not the needy at home, right. also regardless of race, color, or creed. But it was a very high-minded time. I've seen posters of that time imploring Americans to give to the suffering Armenians at a time when the Armenian genocide wasn't all that well-known around right. the world. Uh, and But I think the most important thing about this is... Herbert Hoover was a hero of the day. He did do an awful lot of good in the First World War, and it was based on that reputation and not his later service as Commerce Secretary that he ran for president successfully in 1928. Thank you, gentlemen. That was the storyteller Richard Rubin and the historian Jonathan Bratton. The Storyteller and the Historian is now a full hour-long monthly podcast. Look for them on iTunes and Libsyn, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Next, we're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Today, Mike's post looks at the murky origin of an iconic World War I symbol, the Doughboy. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Teo. Here's our headline. Whence the name Doughboy, no one knows for sure, but American servicemen soon carry the moniker proudly. And this is special to the Great War Project. How did the American troops come to be known as Doughboys? It's far from clear, writes historian Gary Mead, why the four million officers and men who served in the AEF, the American Expeditionary Force, came to be known as Doughboys. It's a sobriquet, he observes, which has not been favored by the passage of time, Mead writes, during the war, the word carried connotations of battlefield heroism, grit, toughness, and physical endurance. Later, the word would turn up mead sniffs as the brand name of an oven-ready bread mix. French and British soldiers were initially at a loss what to call their new comrades. They soon hit on the nickname Sammy after Uncle Sam. That failed to catch on. The official army magazine waged a strong campaign in favor of Doughboy and turned up its nose at Sammy. In a sharply worded editorial, when the fullness of time the American army has been welded by shock and suffering into a single fighting force, the American soldier will find his name. He simply knows it won't be Sammy. But why Doughboy? It could refer, Meade speculates, to the size of the soldier's pay. An American soldier received $30 a month, and in wartime France, that's about 10 times what a French soldier is paid. Reports historian Meade, American soldiers felt loaded with dough. Others believe it's a nickname picked up by American soldiers in Mexico during the American operations there several years earlier, possibly from the description of the adobe huts the American soldiers lived in during those days. Some look even further afield to the Philippines and American operations there. According to one editorial in an American military magazine, the word doughboy originated in the Philippines after a long march over extremely dusty roads. The infantrymen came into camp covered with dust. 
The long hikes brought out the perspiration and the perspiration mixed with the dust to form a substance resembling dough. Mounted soldiers called them doughboys. Some put the same story years earlier in the dust of America's Indian Wars. And some at that time said the buttons on a soldier's shirt resembled a kind of dumpling that they put in soup. The military magazine Stars and Stripes settles the dispute, backed by the commander of the American Expeditionary Force himself, General John J. Pershing. The magazine declares, Doughboy is attaching itself to every living man who wears the olive drab. Of late, with the original Doughboys in the very vanguard of the AEF, the name appears to have taken on a new accent of respect. Infantrymen and artillerymen, medical department boys and signal corps sharks, officers and men alike, all of them are called Doughboys, and some of them are rather proud of it. That's our story for this week from The Great War Project. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from The Great War Project blog. If you'd like to watch videos about World War I, we invite you to check out The Great War Channel on YouTube. They offer great videos about the Great War from a more European perspective. This week's new episodes include The Battle of Passchendaele and Mutiny in the German Navy. They have an episode which is a recap of their trip to England. And finally, The Baltic States in World War I. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search The Great War on YouTube. We've moved forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. News about the centennial and the commemoration. For this week's commission news segment, we decided to flip a coin. There is a U.S. Mint World War I commemorative coin project that we want to tell you about. In 2014, the United States Congress authorized the U.S. Mint to develop and produce a World War I commemoration coin as part of the centennial commemoration. It's been fascinating to watch the project because it takes a really long time to do this. The project was authorized by Congress in 2014. Then, in 2016, the U.S. Mint held a design competition and collected ideas. This year, in 2017, we'll be able to announce the final design and the availability of the coin, which will be in early 2018. This U.S. Mint-issued coin is an ideal collectible keepsake of the centennial for anyone who served. Anyone who had a family member in World War I. It's certainly a must-have for anyone who's been involved in the centennial commemoration, and of course, anyone listening to this podcast, or just anyone who wants to honor and remember those men and women who gave so much for our freedom a hundred years ago. There are other World War I commemorative coins out there, like the beautiful Pritzker Military Museum and Library commemorative coin, or our own remembrance coin in our official merchandise shop, and others. But the official U.S. Mint commemorative coin is a genuine numismatic collectible, and most important, the proceeds go directly towards building America's World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. Think of it as the official, official U.S. keepsake for the centennial of the war that changed the world. Today, we'd like to introduce a new segment called Speaking World War I, where we explore today's words and phrases that have their roots back in the Great War. All right, our word this week is slacker, common today to describe a lazy, unmotivated, flaky individual. 
It first started being used during the World War I era to describe somebody who was not participating in the war effort, especially somebody who was avoiding military service. Essentially, a slacker was a draft dodger. Citizens would even organize coordinated attempts to track down these evaders, an event called a slacker raid. A San Francisco Chronicle headline on September 7, 1918 read, Slacker is doused in barrel of paint. Learn more about the term by following the link in the podcast notes. In activities and events, we're going to profile two events, selected from the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at www.cc.org events, all lowercase, where we're compiling and recording World War I commemorative events from around the country, not just from major metros and museums, but also local events from the heart of the country, showing how the World War I Centennial commemoration is playing out all over. Our local event from Portland, Maine, is at the Osher Map Library. They have an exhibit on view through October 2017 called To Conquer or Submit, America Views the Great War. The exhibit explores the world of propagandistic maps and printed images that Americans relied on to understand World War I. The displays go beyond the propaganda posters to include a range of informative propaganda maps and atlases. The show was curated from the collection of the Osher Map Library and the Smith Center for Cartographic Education. The link in the podcast notes leads to more information about this great local event. For our major metro event, we want to profile a recent lecture at the Hollywood American Legion Post 43 in Los Angeles, California. R.G. Head, a decorated war hero, aviator, scholar, author, and public speaker, shared the story of one of World War I's most important flyers, German aviator Oswald Bulky. Read more about the event and R.G. Head by following the link in the podcast notes. R.G. is also the curator of our own Great War in the Sky timeline and will be joining us here on World War I Centennial News next week for an update retrospective of the war in the sky over the past six months. So, if you're involved with any World War I Centennial events, you're invited to submit them to the National World War I Centennial Events Register. This not only promotes them to the World War I community of interest, but it also puts them into the permanent U.S. National Archival Record of the Centennial. Go to www.cc.org events, click on the big red button, and fill out the form. Every week, we're profiling one of the many amazing projects that are participating in our 100 Cities, 100 Memorials National Matching Grant Challenge, where the Commission, in partnership with the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, are giving away $200,000 in matching grants for the rescue of ailing World War I memorials. Last week, we profiled Mobile, Alabama. This week, we're heading to Phoenix, Arizona to the Veterans of World War I of the USA Monument in Arizona's Wesley Bolin Memorial Plaza. This specific project is unique in the program in that the memorial is part of the state capitol plaza, which also includes their capitol museum, their state library, and the memorial plaza. To tell us about it, we're joined by Neil Urban, capitol planner for the Arizona Department of Administration. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Neil... You work for the state of Arizona. Tell us a little bit about what you do and how you became involved in this memorial restoration. As the capital planner, one of my duties is to oversee the 
care and maintenance of the monuments on uh, Wesley Bolin Memorial Plaza. I just started in this job last September, and one day as we were walking through the plaza, my director said to me, oh, by the way, we should do something about this monument. And she pointed to the this lonely six-foot granite monolith that uh, seemed somewhat derelict. Um, and in reading it and, and researching a little bit, I discovered that it was dedicated by the veterans of World War I of the USA in 1969. And it could see that it was missing something. And in 20, at least 20 years, no one had ever figured out what was missing from the monument. So I started doing some research and I found that what was missing was a bronze plaque, which was the emblem of the veterans of World War I of the USA. So in talking with some historical consultants, someone mentioned that perhaps we could look on eBay and see if there were any artifacts from the group, the veterans of World War I of the USA. And I went on there and found a bronze plaque which was the emblem of the organization. I ordered it and uh, for $25 got it shipped from a basement in Indiana. And once we got it here and we did a little research and looked at the pictures we found of the original installation, which were taken on the day it was dedicated, and we scaled the drawings, it appeared that it was the same size and design of the, as the original plaque. We determined the design was the tri-cornered emblem of the Veterans of World War I, which features the poppy, which is, of course is the emblem of the World War I veterans. And looking at the original design, it seemed the, the, the plaque was very diminutive compared to the size of the monument. And um, to modern sensibilities, we thought perhaps if we scaled it up a little bit, it would give it some more of a sense of gravitas because some of the people I showed the picture to, they said, oh, that's kind of puny. <laughs> so after 20 years, we were very excited to solve that mystery. Neil, in reading a lot of these grant applications, one thing's popped out for me, and that's that each one of these memorial restoration projects has someone's personal passion as the key driving force. Is this more than just another job assignment for you? Well, yes, it. it actually became somewhat obsessive finding out about the veterans of World War I of the USA, which was a very, I found that to be a curious name for a veterans organization because obviously it would have been founded after World War II to be called the veterans of World War I of the USA. And in researching that organization, I found out a lot about the veterans and the history and the story of the veterans of World War I which revealed some interesting history about the treatment of the veterans of World War I, which we sometimes forget about, including the infamous uh, bonus march in Washington in 1932, and the fact that these veterans after World War II kind of felt somewhat neglected when they saw the World War II veterans getting the GI Bill and VA loans and all these um, benefits that they never had after World War I. There appeared to be a sense among the World War I veterans that their trials and tribulations is what led to the better treatment of World War II veterans, and to a certain extent they felt that their contributions were uh, overlooked by veterans associations after World War II. 
So in reading your grant application, it almost seems like 100 Cities, 100 Memorials, combined with your own passion, has triggered a statewide review of your World War I memorials. Is that actually true? Definitely. In doing the research for our monument, we were in contact with the Arizona Department of Veteran Services and some of the other veteran service organizations around the state in trying to find out about the veterans of World War I. And that led to a dialogue uh, among all these organizations and discussions with uh, various cities and towns around the state. And that's how we put together our application that includes memorials in uh, two or three cities as well as the, the state's uh, memorial. Neil, thank you for being here. I thank you very much. That was Neil Urban on the Veterans of World War I of the USA Monument in Phoenix, Arizona's Memorial Plaza. We're going to continue to profile the submitting teams and their projects over the coming months. Learn more about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program at www.cc.org slash 100 Memorials, or follow the link in the podcast notes. This week, we're combining the Spotlight in the Media and the International Report segments by introducing you to a new World War I podcast docudrama. Enter the Peace Broker by Martin Wade. Episode 1, When the Lusitania Went Down. Introduced by Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. The story of the First World War runs in parallel with another narrative. The story of how to define peace and how to make that peace relevant to a world profoundly changed by war. Enter the Peace Broker by Martin Wade, was produced by Chrome Radio as a five-part podcast docudrama that uses first-hand accounts, diaries, correspondence, and contemporary coverage to explore the events leading up to America's entry into World War I. With us today are noted World War I historian Sir Hugh Strawn, professor of international relations at the University of St. Andrews, and a member of UK's National Committee for the Centenary of the First World War, and Katrina Oliphant, founding director of Chrome Radio, an independent audio production company. Welcome to both of you. Hello, Taz. Good to be here. Thank you, Taz. Katrina, let me start with you. How did this project come about? Well, back in 2011, which now seems a long time ago, uh, I was beginning to think about what one might do in radio and audio terms for the centenary. This is partly because we make programs for BBC Radio and they commission one to two years ahead. One of the things that I was thinking about then was that in the 21st century, it's more important than ever to understand the First World War and its legacy, as you say, it was the war that changed the world. Uh, and the challenge we have is that there are no survivors alive, so it is a long way back. That was the first challenge. How were we going to engage people? And the second was a very real desire to focus on the political, diplomatic and peace story. In the UK, there is uh, a focus on the Western Front. A lot of people don't realize that the war was global, that it went far beyond that, and importantly, that it didn't end in 1918. It actually didn't end until 1923 with peace in the Levant. So we started looking at that story. Uh, 
we also wanted to do a docudrama. The reason for this is the material, the sources are fabulous. We wanted to bring the people alive and we wanted the people who were there at the time who were witness to the events to tell their story. So we decided to go the docudrama route and the idea was that that docudrama should act as a catalyst to inspire panel discussion events, the development of educational resources, some broadcast uh, media, etc. We also decided that rather than going the broadcast route for the drama, we would go the podcast route. The idea behind that, we were kindly sponsored by an educational charity, the Rothermere Foundation, which has long-standing links through Lord Northcliffe with the US. They funded us. And we wanted the drama to be available worldwide and free at the point of use. And you'll be pleased to know we've been getting lots of listeners from San Francisco. That's great. Sir Hugh, you're considered by many as the leading World War I historian. How did you get involved in the project? Contrian and I had, had done a number of broadcasts before for BBC Radio. And I knew uh, that the standards that she applied to production standards that respected the sources, understood the historical context, were the same ones that I would subscribe to, and that there could be a a relationship here which honored what I felt was important as a historian and what she understood as important in audio terms, in other words, what what would work in a podcast. So that was the motivation for working with Chrome Radio. Uh, The other important point to me was that in the focus on the war, as a war on, on the fighting, um, on battle itself, we tend to forget the story behind the scenes, the story not just of the continuation of politics and of foreign policy, and of diplomacy, of relations between allies, uh, but also the story of how to bring this war to an end. Because from the very beginning, uh, people look around and say, this is crazy. Uh, particularly in the European context. Why is Europe tearing itself apart? Can we not find a way to bring the war to an end? And indeed, from the very outset uh, in the US, uh, Woodrow Wilson, prompted in part by Colonel House, uh, is already thinking uh, the role of the United States should be uh, that of an arbiter, that of somebody who can speak to both sides simultaneously in order to try to end this war. Uh, as we know, Wilson didn't achieve that objective. Uh, we did ultimately, perhaps, by, by 1918, 1919, not, certainly not in the terms in which he imagined in 1914 or 1915. So alongside the story of the war, there is an ongoing story of peace negotiations right throughout the war. Um, and as Katrina said, I mean, the war did not end in November 1918. Aspects of it ended uh, before November 1918, Uh, Russia is out of this war effectively by 1917 and formally by March 1918. Um, And when the central powers collapsed, they collapsed seriatim, not simultaneously. The United States commemorates, Britain commemorates the armistice of the 11th of November, the armistice of Germany. Uh, But um, other countries have made peace before then. Uh, Other countries made peace afterwards. And the formal peace negotiations... Uh, went on for some time, and while they were going on for some time, for the the next four years ultimately, fighting continued. About four million more people died between November 1918 and the signing of the Treaty of Lausanne in 1923. Now, this question is to both of you. 
as a listener to the series, what should I expect my experience to be? Let's start with you, Katrina. I think I'll have to go from the reactions we've had because, as you all know, as a as an audio producer, you hope to achieve something, but you don't know whether or not you have until you have feedback from listeners. The aim, which I'm told we have achieved, is to bring the personalities to life. We made a conscious decision dramatically to tell the story through the eyes of, if you like, the people just behind the throne. So, for example, we have Colonel House, who tells the story and tells us about Wilson. Secondly, we wanted to use their own words. And so we have used primary sources, as you said in the introduction, diaries and letters, because we wanted the people to be their own advocates. And we hope, after listening to Enter the Peace Broker, you will be very keen to listen to Peace in the Land of the Soviets, which is the second one. And we hope that you might become more interested in the First World War and want to know more. And perhaps, dare I say, if you even come to one of the panel discussion events we're going to be putting on in the States in November. Sir Hugh, the same question to you. As a listener to the series, what should I expect my experience to be? I hope what you get is a sense that Wilson is a conscientious and principled president who finds himself saying in 1915, to quote a phrase that may be only too familiar today, who finds himself saying, America first, and then realizes that for America to be first, it actually needs to be a participant in international affairs. Katrina, you said that you were coming to the USA later this year for a series of panels. Tell us about that. We held uh, an event at the British Library in April. We worked with the Eccles Center for North American Studies there. And we put on a panel discussion involving a U.S. historian and a cultural historian talking about the issues raised uh, by the events covered in Enter the Peace Broker. This was always an important part of the whole project. It was a sellout event, and we've done a podcast of that, which we've combined with clips from the drama and also music, First World War songs specially recorded for the drama. We're now doing a similar thing in the U.S. We're going to take part in a couple of First World War symposia, one at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the other at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City. Again, we will be having a panel this time of American academics and experts, again, to discuss uh, the issues raised by the events in Enter the Peace Broker, but importantly, giving a U.S. focus and indeed a domestic U.S. focus. This is an American story, and we were very keen to bring the story of Wilson's attempts to make peace, to bring that home to the States. The program's being finalized, but it will be end of October, beginning of November, and we hope to be in the States for about 10 days. And indeed, I hope to link up with Mike Schuster if he's listening. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you, Teo. Thank you very much indeed, Teo. That was Katrina Oliphant and Sir Hugh Strawn about their new podcast docudrama, Enter the Peace Broker. To listen to all the episodes of Enter the Peace Broker, visit audioboom.com and search for Enter the Peace Broker. The podcasts are also available on iTunes and other major podcast platforms. 
Additionally, Sir Hugh's recent Radio 3 essay series, The Long Road to Peace, can be heard at bbc.co.uk slash radio. Search for The Long Road to Peace. And of course, we have links to all these places for you in the podcast notes. It's time for our Articles and Posts segment, where we explore the World War I Centennial Commission's rapidly growing website at www.cc.org. As a preface, in the official bulletin August 9, 1917 issue, the headline reads, Mobilization of men for new National Army to begin on September 1st. And so the great transcontinental shuffling of soldiers to training camps begins 100 years ago. And the centennial of this massive mobilization is being commemorated. We have three separate articles on the Commission's website that came out this week, all profiling different aspects of this milestone moment. We'll start with an overview article titled, The National Guard's Defining Role in World War I. This is a great crash course about the National Guard's mobilization and their transformation from traditionally local militias into a cohesive national military force as it gets drafted into the U.S. Army on August 5, 1917. Another article, Honoring World War I's Finest, the Rainbow Division, presents a commemoration and rededication to take place on August 12, 2017, marking the 100th anniversary of the activation of the 42nd New York Division. It's known as the Rainbow Division because the 42nd was created from the National Guard units of 26 different states and the District of Columbia. A young Douglas MacArthur, who will continue to play a major military role through the Second World War, was then the 42nd Division's chief of staff and said that this diverse unit would, quote, stretch over the whole country like a rainbow. Another article, Remembering the Rainbow Division, is a personal tribute. On August 28th, in Montgomery, Alabama, a Korean War veteran and Silver Star recipient will honor his father and the many others who served in the 4th Alabama National Guard, which became part of the 42nd Rainbow Division after they were federalized. Rod Frazier, author and historian, will officially unveil and dedicate a bronze monument marking exactly 100 years since 3,677 Alabama Guardsmen, including his father, William Frazier, hopped onto one of eight trains from Union Station to fight in the war that changed the world. Read any of these articles by following the links in the podcast notes. In episode 26, we mentioned knitting used for covert communications in World War I and World War II. Well, this week's article, The Wool Brigades of World War I When Knitting Was a Patriotic Duty, discusses knitting's more traditional use during the conflict. Even before America joined the war, organizations such as the American Red Cross and the American Fund for the French Wounded issued pleas for warm clothing for soldiers, or, as a Navy League poster put it, knit a bit. After April 1917, the Red Cross and the Comfort Committee worked together to mobilize the general public to the war effort with a goal for 1.5 million knitted garments for our boys. Read more about it at www.cc.org news or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to The Buzz. The Centennial of World War I This Week in Social Media, with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what have you picked for us this week? 
Gas, as we've noted in previous episodes, wasn't really delivered on the battlefield in gaseous form. It was actually a powder or liquid inside of a shell that was dispersed once that shell exploded. Some one and a half billion shells were fired during World War I, and one in three of those shells did not explode. These 500 million unexploded shells are still being discovered in the fields of France and Belgium. This week, we shared a video from BBC about a Belgian bomb disposal unit whose job is to collect these ordinances and dispose of them safely. After gathering the shells, the team has to x-ray any they suspect may contain gas. That's the safest way to look inside for liquid or powdered chemical weapons. The non-chemical high explosive shells are piled together into a 20 feet deep hole, covered in earth by a bulldozer and then ignited. Go to our Facebook page to watch the whole video from the BBC. Wrapping up this week, we shared story after story this past Monday about the Purple Heart and those who had earned one. August 7th is Purple Heart Day, and if you go through our social media wall at www.cc.org social, you'll see a number of stories from this past week about the history of the Purple Heart, as well as a few stories that reach from the present back to 100 years ago. Purple Hearts Reunited is a nonprofit foundation that locates lost or stolen medals and returns them to veterans who earn them or to their families. This August 7th, they returned eight Purple Hearts, including that of Private Frank Lyman Dunnell Jr., who served as an infantryman in the 107th Infantry Regiment, 27th Infantry Division in World War I. Frank was wounded on October 2, 1918, as his unit fought during the Somme Offensive. His medal was discovered at the Bank of New York many years ago and will be returned to his great-niece. Search the hashtag #PurpleHeartDay on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to read more stories like this one. Thank you, Catherine. And that's it for World War I Centennial News for this week. We want to thank our guests, Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, and their storyteller in the historian segment on the Food Administration. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog and his post about the origins of the word doughboy. Neil Urban for our profile on the veterans of World War I of the USA Monument in Phoenix, Arizona. Katrina Oliphant and Sir Hugh Strawn sharing their docudrama, Enter the Peace Broker. Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, and this show is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. If you like the work that we're doing, please support it with a tax-deductible donation at www.cc.org donate, all lowercase. Or if you're on a smartphone, text the word WW1 to 41444. That's the letters WW and the number 1, texted to 41444. Any amount is appreciated. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn, on iTunes and Google Play at www.centennialnews. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. 
Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here with somebody about the war that changed the world. And we're all going, calling on the Kaiser. All we've got to teach the Kaiser to be wiser. At the foot of Flanders Hill, we'll be planting Kaiserville. We'll wish him well with shot and shell. The son of a gun will give him well. We're all going, calling on the Kaiser. So long.